Welcome to the Apollo Social Science Podcast, where we speak to people working in the borderlands between social science and healthcare. In each episode, we hear about someone working in this space to hear about three big ideas that have influenced their thinking and development. And the idea really is to show how the ideas within social science can change someone's thinking, can change the way that someone looks at healthcare, can change the research that they do. And so today I'm joined by Natalia Concha, who's a research fellow in the Centre for Primary Care at Queen Mary University of London. And one of the reasons why I'm particularly glad to be speaking to you today, Natalia, is that your route to health research is completely different to mine, and I'm not even going to have a go at trying to summarise how you got to what, what you're doing now. So would you be able to say a bit about your um, research journey and your journey generally so far that's brought you to this point? Okay, well, uh, perhaps I should start from where I'm from. I am from Colombia and I am a migrant from the global south, living in the global north, in one of the mega cities of the global north. And I think that brings in an experience and a perspective that um, can very much give me a very different way of looking at how uh, health and public health research is done um, in the UK, which is a very different context from where I'm from and from the communities and the places that I have access and had the privilege to access through the research that I have been involved with. So one of the things that um, has been very fascinating for me was that um, throughout my education and also through the work that I've done, I've always partnered with NGOs and the NGOs have enabled access for me, who's still like an urban person, I come from the third largest city in Colombia, to go to um, areas that are either in the urban periphery of the Latin American belts of poverty that we have or in very remote, isolated communities in rural regions that have highlighted to me how, even though we're all from the same country, these were all communities that were living very different experiences that had distinct life worlds that were very much um, enriching the research, but also the actionable recommendations that we could propose uh, right. within the research projects that I have been involved with. So um, I carry that with me throughout. And it was fascinating coming to the LSE where I did my education to actually come across other uh, people that came from the Global South as well right. that had incorporated that into their teachings, particularly from Latin America, which is the region that um, I'm familiar with. So um, I did my master's. I worked for a bit in policy in the UK and also in Colombia, again, partnering with NGOs. I then decided I should probably do a PhD, <laughs> um, but I had not started the PhD yet because I had always thought to myself, what is that burning question that I would really like to answer that will get me to carry through the PhD? Mm. And I had to work for a few years before I could actually find out what right. that really was. And so when it finally came to me, then I applied for it. It was actually very uh, convenient as well in terms of my own like personal life at that moment, because it gives you a flexibility yes. that you don't have with a nine to five office. And we have to remember we were living in pre-pandemic working practices. So the idea of working from home was not as accepted as, as it is today. 
And so I did my PhD and then immediately following the PhD, pretty much from submission. And then the next day I started working in a, in a, in a multi-partnership uh, project in Colombia with these remote communities mm. that were actually spaces where the um, internal armed conflict was lived in Colombia. Colombia went through 60 years of armed conflict mm. and it was only in 2016 that a peace agreement was actually signed with the government and the different actors that were involved in it. So um, I think that a lot of my learning in my studies but also my practical experience have sh has shown me like the absolute centrality of the social context mm. and I apply that in the research that I am doing at the moment here in Queen Mary which is a program that is also applying a wider partnership model in very similar approaches to the ones that I have been involved with. It's just that the extent the research problem is a little bit different and so is the context. We're going to start with one, the first big idea that you've chosen. Um, it's an article with an intriguing title called What Can Be Said? Identity as a Constraint on Knowledge Production by Alex Gillespie and Flora Cornish. Um, could you say a bit about what the article is about and what, why you chose it? So um, before we talk about the article, let me bring you out a little bit and tell you a little bit about what social representations are, because I realise that in the article there is a lot of assumed knowledge about this theory. There's different forms of social psychology. So we have in the American tradition the sort of more individualistic, experimental paradigm. Uh, with attitudinal research, with um, bystander, like a lot of the experiments that um, have been very prominent in social psychology, but um, they don't apply that understanding of the social context that we have in what uh, far as well described European forms, the sociological forms, the forms that look more at the context. So within that tradition, uh, Serge Moscovici, who was a Romanian that emigrated to France, developed the theory of social representations. And what representations are is that they are a system basically of values or of ideas, of practices that have a twofold function. So the first one is that they enable us as humans to uh, make sense of the world, which is complex and messy, and to be able to orientate ourselves and master it. And then the second is that it gives us all a sort of shared code of exchange, shared understanding, shared meanings to be able to communicate with each other. So in social representations, we um, understand that a lot of what we make sense of is very much socially situated. So I'm going to give you an example. At school, you tell me, but like in a very basic level, a school is a place where children and young people go to learn. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah why not? Basic level, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then if we move away from that basic functional basis, then we find that schools are represented very different ways depending on where you are based, right. and what interaction you have with school and what access you have to it. So for instance, if we think about Malala, for her, school meant something that was a right, a fundamental right mm. that she was denied, that she thought it was so worth fighting for that she got shot by the Taliban. Mm. So Malala from Pakistan 
So schools are a very fundamental right. Mm. Compared to, say, my daughter, who's only a few years younger than what she was. She was 15 when she got shot. Mm. My daughter is 13. See schools as a taken-for-granted thing that she does right. and that young people and girls her age just do. It's mundane. It's where they go, you know, during time, time on an everyday basis. And it can be a bit boring. Yes. So... Very basic representation schools, everyone has a representation of school, but varies greatly depending on the context okay. and depending on the barriers on the macro level factors that might be giving you access or not, and how you interact with that. Right. In this case, Malala, as a young girl, was denied that right. Yes. My daughter is also a young girl, but it is actually state mandated, so she goes to school. Yes. 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 Okay. And it's not a question. And, and so that sort of understanding of social representations, of spotting that some, you know, taken for granted things may have different uh, meanings, may have different representations in different places. What, what does that um, perspective allow you to see differently in, let, let's, let's say, applied to health? Okay. So... Um, in a lot of the work that we do in Colombia, particularly, this comes out a lot. So is the idea that we bring ourselves to understand the perspective of the other. And that's something that um, Alex Gillespie in that paper talks a lot about in his general work. So that enables us to come in and sort of go, I'm going to try as much as possible to put away my assumptions. Although that's impossible anyway, because we do acknowledge the subjectivity of the researcher in the approach um, of social representations and of social cultural psychology and that aligns with qualitative methods as well. But the, uh, what that gives you is a little window to try to understand that life world of those communities and where they are coming from. And the fact that you cannot come in with a, an absolutely stop down approach to health in terms of like optimal health. Because people's social realities are very different from ours and can be horrendously constrained. Mm. And that constraint leads them to carry out what we would consider unhealthy practices, but that within the context in which they live, they don't actually have many choices mm. in some cases. Not in all. I mean, yeah. it's, all it's all very, very varied and, yes. and, and you know, very heterogeneous. So um, I'll give you an example that uh, one of my teachers used to tell us at, uh, at the LSE, which is that um, rural mothers in Brazil uh, used to give a little bit of um, uh, alcohol to their babies mm. so that they could work for 10 hours plus mm. in the field with their babies at their back. Yeah. So from an optimal health perspective, well, you don't want that, right, obviously. Right. But then what are you then to tell those mothers? What are they to do then? If they don't work those 10 hours, how are they going to feed the rest of the children that they have at mm -hmm. home? Mm -hmm. So a lot of that is basically um, enabling us to understand that there is the social determinants, mm -hmm. the wider structural inequalities yeah. that in many ways are framing health. I see. And in that regard, we are quite critical, and that is borrowing also from critical public health and from community health psychology. Again, a lot of my teachers are from that uh, tradition at the LSE, 
is that the idea that we have the knowledge attitude behavior paradigm, which is that you give people the knowledge and then they'll change their behavior, is very simplistic and, right. and unidirectional. Because there's an awful lot of wealth in between that knowledge mm. to get to that behavior. Yeah. And that's where representations, that's, that's where right. a lot of uh, that understanding comes in. Yes. Because yes. people also have identities, they have um, different ways of understanding the world, of being and constrained. Yes. Wow. So just to sort of go back to that, that um, example you were talking about, where mothers might give their, uh, children, their, their young children some alcohol, the, the sort of social representation there that we might take for granted is like what good health is. Like health we'd see as, like if we weren't careful, we'd see it as like a stable term that can be applied there just as we'd apply it here. And therefore this looks crazy or, you know, this looks horrible, but actually to understand that health has a different representation for that individual and that community because of the constraints that they're facing. Is, is, that, is that the sort of way that the idea of social representation would, would come in there? Yeah. Um, and also that people are very resourceful and they use knowledges in very different ways. Mm. So um, they adapt to the possibilities of what's available to them, mm. but they also will take the health knowledge and the medicalized knowledge um, and, and, and accept it. It's not an either or. I, yes. like, we really move away from the binary notion of health mm. in, in these approaches. So I'll give you another example from my PhD. So, um, as we know, again, breastfeeding as well for infants is optimal, you know, mm. with the WHO guidelines, everything, at least six months of excluded yeah. breastfeeding, that is what, you know, we're pushing for and we want. But then I go and I interview um, mothers with infants and then um, for, for different reasons, one of them was not able to uh, continue breastfeeding. Mm. And so the doctor, tells her that then she has to get this infant formula and the baby suffers from regurgitation and different things. So it has to be this brand because she's the brand that doesn't give them that kind of reaction. Mm. But of course, the brand that the doctor prescribes is 10 times more expensive right. than the brand, than the cheaper brand. Yes. And then as a figure, like 50 times, I don't like, there's no other quote, but I'm just trying to make the point that um, 50 times than mango juice which is what she can give her baby. Mm. So she's giving her baby mango juice, which contradicts, again, all of the health advice. Mm. But this woman cannot afford anything else. Mm. Mm. We all know how expensive formula milk is, particularly like for like mothers in these global south regions mm. who are barely scraping you know, um, anything to be able to survive. And again, feed the rest of the family that they support. Many of them are heads of households, actually. So um, we come across again this problem that, and, and it's not the remit of, of, the, of the health professional or the doctor. Why is the doctor, the doctor has to give the, the, the advice, but then the doctor doesn't have access to be able to provide right. that access to the optimal milk for mm. the baby's health. It's a structural problem. Mm. Mm -hmm. It's about structural inequalities. Yeah. So what, Having that understanding of representations and of the realities of the life world enables us to understand where people are coming from. Yes. It's yes. not about defending or arguing, but it's about understanding. Yes. That people live in very different situations than, say, what we do in high-income, global north. Yes. 
context like we do here. The thing that I like about working in my current project in the UK is that there are resources. Yes. And there is access. And that does create quite a different possibility for opportunities for people that are experiencing poverty or different forms of inequalities. Mm. Although still, it is staggering that, for instance, just recently the Joseph Roundtree Foundation published a report saying that in the UK right now, we have one million children living in destitution. Mm. Again, it's like a staggering statistic considering this is such a rich country. Yes. Is there anything else that this particular paper brings that you'd like to say before we move on to your second idea? So another point that connects and is intrinsically connected to social representations is the idea of identities. And mm. that's something that they address a lot in the paper because the paper is actually a, a homage to their late teacher, Gerard Duvine, who uh, was also a very prominent figure in the field of social representations. He was one of the editors of uh, Moscovici's book when it was translated into English, which took a little bit of time, because for a while it was only accessible in French. So but the idea of identities then, and hence the title of the paper, is the example that they give with how visitors coming in. And the idea that as adults, when we are located in a social interaction, we head towards consensus. We want to arrive at a place where we find some agreement. People find disruption difficulties, hard to deal with confrontation, and it, it makes sometimes the situations a little bit uneasy. So what's interesting about that is that they highlight that when the health visitor gives advice to the families and they're in agreement, it all goes smoothly and works well. But when it doesn't, and they use the case of smoking, then it's challenging for the receiver, in this case the family, to accept what the health visitor is telling them in terms of stopping smoking or being a bit more careful where they're smoking, close to the baby or what have you, because it's challenging their identity as a good parent. Mm. And human beings in general have an identity where they consider themselves to be fundamentally good. Yes. We don't really, in general, think of ourselves as being bad people. And in parenting and mothering, that comes even more at the fore because it's so intrinsically important and related to early childhood development and child health and what have you. Mm. So the reaction that the parents have in the paper that they describe is that of, I'm not going to engage with this because it's actually creating a little bit of dissonance. Right. And the health visitor senses that, then moves on to planned advice. So when should they start weaning the baby? That hasn't happened yet. So mm. the family can go, yeah, yeah, of course, we're going to, you know, win the baby at that time and give, give the, you know, <laughs> appropriate solace that are, um, that are recommended by the health visitor and what have you. So this is where I think public health and health advice and healthcare has to be more mindful about the fact that when you're coming in with that, established knowledge and it is disrupting people's behaviors people's understandings it can be quite challenging because again it's challenging their own identities yes yes so it's not just that your your kind of representations are different um but it's that actually you can you can do some harm to someone you, you know or, or at least you can put them in a in a place of in a conflict and I guess particularly with the power differences when you are the official sort of voice of health, um, the sort of state-sanctioned person who can say this is this and this is that. Thank you.
So the second big idea you've brought is a book called Underground Sociabilities, Identity, Culture and Resistance in Rio de Janeiro's Favelas, um, which is written by Sandra Jovchelovich and Jacqueline Prigo Hernandez. So I'd be interested to know um, what were you up to when you read this or, or how, did, how did you come across it <laughs> and um, what, what has it meant to you? Okay, so when I was going to um, do my PhD, I should uh, first of all say that Sandra was my supervisor and she was also my tutor when I did the masters. Okay. So when I was, you know, exploring the idea, then uh, her and Jackie, who was also her student, but um, as I came into the LSE, Jackie was finishing, uh, well, she had finished actually, and she was doing this, this uh, project um, with Sandra. So. I wanted to find a bit more of a common ground because my, my uh, PhD was on maternal health and that's not Sandra's uh, remit. So we were trying to find what, what, what we have the conceptual framing, we have the method, everything else, but the research problem was a little bit at odds. And then also I was looking for a specific theory because even though I was going to use social representations, there was something else that I really want to explore in the intergenerational dynamics and the support systems that enable young mothers, which were the population in my research, to transition into mothering, despite living in a context of what Sandra describes as context of adversity, which are places where there's poverty, violence and stigma. Mm -hmm. So as I was coming back to the LSE, they were working on this uh, research. And first of all, the first thing was the parallels that I found with the favelas of Rio and then the Colombian barrios where I was uh, mm -hmm. going to be doing my research. So there are, even though there's so much heterogeneity that I was talking to you earlier, there's still a lot of shared uh, constraints, mm. and uh, but also shared sociabilities. That, the life role that she was describing was very similar to the one that I was finding mm. as well in the um, urban periphery, because I had already worked in the place where I was going to go and do my research in different projects. And I've known that community for many years in my life, also from like a, a personal basis. So first of all, that was, this is the context. Mm -hmm. And it's really important that we grasp the context. So we have that quite aligned. And then uh, one of the things that they came up with uh, empirically in terms of a new uh, extension of a concept was this idea of psychosocial scaffoldings which um, they describe as structures of support that hold the self in adverse contexts. So mm. in their case, it was about um, youth in the favelas that were coming out of violence and were coming out of gangs, and they were finding that support systems in NGOs, in community leaders, to live a life away from violence. Very similar to what I was exploring in, in my own community, mm. in, in the community of the research. So uh, the book describes psychosocial scaffoldings. It uh, brings in like a lot of the different ancestors that we studied. And I think it was fantastic in mm. terms of crystallizing what I was finding with the intergenerational yeah. dynamics that I had in my research. Uh, applied at community level as well from, from their work. Could you say a bit about um, just to picture a bit more of this idea of psychosocial scaffolding, how you were seeing that in the communities that you were working in. What, 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 did, what did that scaffolding look like there? So um, what it enabled me to unpack 
is um, this idea that we tend to regard mothering in a very instrumental way, which is one of the things that I critique about um, the literatures that address, that address particularly early childhood development, which tend to be very much focused on the child. Now, the mother is the instrument, is the object that is enabling that development of the child, but the subjectivity of the mother appears less so. Mm. And there is nothing more intrinsically relational than the mothering child diet. However, what I found in, um, in the barrios in, in the district of Agua Blanca, which is where I did my research, was that this extended to a triad, where the maternal grandmothers of the baby are either mothers of the mothers-to-be, mm. and then obviously who became mothers, where central scaffolding sources of support for that mother. Mm. So here what, what I found was that the mother was supporting the baby, but then who is supporting mother? Is her own mother mm, mm. and that in that support system and that triad became fundamental to understanding how young mothers were making sense of their own mothering how they were transitioning into mothering and how they were able to continue a life project it was all thanks to the to right. the grandmother because i should also say that in my community and that is representative of the local demographics the um Fathering modalities differ mm -hmm. quite a bit, and there's a lot of absence. Right. I'm talking about young mothers, yes. 16 to 20 year olds. So, who is the one that comes in and gives that central positioning in that third space that is missing is, is the grandmother. Mm. Psychosocial scaffoldings help us to understand that theoretically mm. because it's about also that emotional support that is so needed in mothering that the concept enables, um, well, enable me to understand what was happening, mm. that goes beyond social, the social knowledge of social representations. Mm. That was the bit that was missing because right. they take a lot of the idea of holding and handling from Donald Winnicott. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so it was as though, yeah, it's not just a case of um, looking at different representations, but actually specifically trying to understand what I liked your phrase, and I think you said, what allows someone to continue their life project? What, what allows, despite the the constraints therein, what is it that allows people to keep to keep going? Is that is that sort of what a way of looking at what this scaffolding provides? Absolutely, and in my research, the baby herself is a central scaffold to the mother. So it's not just unidirectional from mother to baby, mm. but baby gives back to mother. Because in these cases, for instance, I had mothers telling me, my baby has now given me a reason to stay out of risky practices. Mm. My baby has now enabled me to move away from drugs, mm. to move away from a gang that I might have been affiliated with. Because now I have a reason beyond myself to have an enriching life, to give that life project to the child. Mm. And so um, it's fascinating because it really points out uh, the symbolic value of human relations. Mm. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to say about this book? I think one of the things that is very important that uh, Sandra and Jackie highlight, but it also resonates with my work and with the work of people that are in the Global South and in Latin America, 
is to move away from the headlines. So the same thing in, in the ways in which the favelas are represented, my barrios are represented, which is this idea that there are spaces of violence, or of narco-traffic, of micro-traffic, of gangs, of poverty, of social exclusion. But what the book did was actually uplift the underground sociabilities that tend to remain invisible to formal society and to the global eye. Mm. And what she found was that there were spaces of conviviality, of solidarity, of many forms of creativity with art, with music, uh, with, with an amazing resistance to that heavy weight of the context to actually make different life projects through those kinds of creative responses, through the work that the NGOs were able to do, to the fact that the leaders of the NGOs were themselves part of gangs before, so they had that lived experience that they could say to other young people, I know you. Mm. I used to be you. So there's that mirror effect as well that is so important in role yes. modeling. So I think it's really important to also regard the favela, the barrio, as places that are not homogeneous and places that also have a lot to offer. But also that the vast majority of the people that live in the barrios and the favelas are people that work. The young people are people that want to study and they mm. want to better their lives. They all want to just have the opportunities to be able to do so. It's just that the visibility gets escalated with the gangs. Right. But in terms of proportionality, they're quite small. Yes, yes. And you have many, many, many people living in, and like, and, and it relates to like the, all of, like I was saying at the beginning, the urban belts of poverty that characterize the Latin American city. So we talk about millions of people. Mm. But then they get stigmatized and they get otherized and they get those practices of exclusion because of where they come from. Yes. So you miss the sort of genuine everyday stories that, that lots and lots and lots of people are experiencing because you've got the particularly dramatic ones that, Grab the headlines. Thank you. The third and final big idea that you've brought today is a book chapter. And so the book itself is um, Action and Knowledge, Breaking the Monopoly with Participatory Action Research, another brilliant name. Um, and the chapter you have chosen has also got a brilliant name called Together Against the Computer. Um, so can you tell us a bit about what's said in the chapter and why you've chosen it? So what happened is that um, Bijarica is a very remote community, uh, mainly of, Afro of Afro-Colombians, and they are, again, another very poor community, like the poverty levels are staggering. But they are communities like in the favelas and like in the barriers that have a lot of sociability, a very rich community life, and people know each other. There's that kind of idea of the village of co cohesiveness that, that, that we have when we have smaller numbers and when we are a bit more remote. So what happened is that the, as development came in to a lot of these places in the, in the last century, then electricity came in and people then started enjoying the comfort of electricity and then the electricity came to town. But then the electrical company started artificially charges, charging them bills that were basically not accurate to the consumption patterns of what they were actually doing right. in their homes. So this is a fantastic example of how collective action was mobilized and actually had a, a positive outcome, mm. which is that they all came together and say, well, <laughs> this is not right, you're exploiting us, and we are all going to come together and show you how you're doing this. And so they did. 
and they had uh, lots of meetings, lots of uh, their own community boards. They moved it regionally, so it became quite large scale. And then together, every time that they would get a bill, there would be a reason to have a meeting and to discuss. They created responses to the way that they were seeing this injustice. And then, because of the scale, they were able to then bring the electrical company to account. And the reason why they have the title on the computer is because a lot of those uh, meter readings were artificially created by the staff claiming that it came from the computer, but then surprisingly that it was different month to month they were all using the same so they started comparing the consumption patterns and it just didn't make sense right so the computer isn't always right yes and here the people were right so this is a chapter in a book that also means a lot to me because the first thing i should say is that um, the uh, one of the editors of the book is orlando fasborda who is a colombia was a Colombian sociologist that coined the term participatory action research. And Fasborda was doing participatory action research back in the 60s in Colombia and is very much um, aligned with the tradition of Paulo Freire in Brazil and Martin Baró and a lot of uh, scholar activists that basically saw the inequalities, saw these harsh social realities that people were living in and had to do something about it and had to do orlando actually said um in that uh, in that book that he was he was doing people science mm. and of course now we call it citizen science so i think it's important for the global south to have again a bit more uplifting that invisibility right. now we're talking a lot about uh, public engagement and public involvement and it's become very much a cornerstone of uh, health research, which I, which I think is super important, and I'm very, very glad that this is happening. But I think there is a lot of learning and experience of decades where this work has been carried out in right. Latin America and in many other regions in the global south. India as well has a tradition in Africa, but I will talk about Latin America because it is the area that I know. Mm. And so um, the book, uh, the, the book is by, uh, by, by Orlando Fasborda with Rachman as well, but then the chapter that I chose is by Gustavo de Rue. Gustavo is uh, one of these other scholar activists from my hometown. He has been working all his life on social development and on sociology, but also very much in an action way to help better the lives of people. So what I think is beautiful about that chapter is that it's uh, a very positive um, narrative of people finally having a success story against the institution and against the, the heavyweight of society that tends to uh, generally marginalize them. Okay. So the point that I think is very important as well is that these were people, Gustavo, Paulo Freire, Fasborda, Alfredo Molano as well, they have been immersed in the communities and they apply that long-term continuity that is required to enable that trust and to enable all of the principles that we hear about with public involvement and community mm. engagement 
Bagusao lived in Villarrica, in this tiny remote village in, in the Cauca Valley, close to our city, for 10 years. Wow. So when we talk about trust, sometimes we're just play, paying lip service to it. Because for these kinds of communities to really engage with us, well, they need that space. Right. And they need that understanding that you are an external, but you are coming in and you're going to uh, work with them in the process. But the, the chapter just highlights how they, the people got together. And here I can link back to um, social representations because we value experiential knowledge, common sense. Representations are in many ways an understanding of common sense. And Moscovici also talked about dismantling that asymmetry of knowledge systems that we have. You highlighted that as well in terms of the power relations and the power dynamics mm -hmm. that we might have between the health professional and, and the patient. But to understand participatory research and to have a more equal understanding of what's going on when we do these partnership models, then we have to acknowledge that there are very different forms of knowledge but that the experiential grounded logic, uh, knowledge that comes from the lived experience, comes from those lived realities from those communities, is something that we have to really value mm. and that they bring something to the table that we don't have. I mean, there's so much there that is, is striking to me. I guess one thing is that I've heard the term participatory action research and a bit about it, but I did not know at all that it had its roots in Latin American um, thinkers and practitioners and it makes complete sense you know knowing a very small amount about sort of other things like liberation theology where where sort of thought and ideas and action have come together um, but that's yeah it, it's striking to me that especially as a uh, sort of recent newcomer to um, to qualitative research methods that one can hear about um, ideas without knowing enough about their history to really to really ground them, and I think that's that's quite yeah that that, that adds something to knowing knowing a little bit about the history of of where a method has has come from. Absolutely, and I do think that now that this is taking more a more central central ground, I think there's a lot that we really do need to bring from the global south in terms of those experiences, not just in terms of part, but in a lot of other approaches and methodologies. Because when we're looking at tackling health inequalities, the Global South has a lot to teach because it's so unequal. Mm. And a lot of the reason why um, a lot of these um, scholar activists were involved with these, were developing these ideas is because they were seeing the problems on the ground and they were coming up with solutions or responses to those massive problems that they were seeing. Yes. And also that a lot of these communities, a lot of these people have a very different way of perceiving, of understanding the world that, again, we need to reconnect with, particularly with the climate emergency that we are experiencing. So there's a lot to be learned right now to moving away from like uh, overconsumption, neoliberalism, all of these things that are actually destroying the planet. But we go back to a lot of these communities they are intrinsically connected with the land, with nature. They are respectful of the other living beings in yes. the planet. So there's something I think that is really important for humanity. We really want to move forward and not destroy ourselves in the process to learn from the majority world 
Yes. Which is the other term, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, I'd I'd love to ask as well, just because you've come to health research from a background of studying, I guess, other elements of of the social world outside of health, and you've been in a, a sort of completely different, well, at least somewhat different discipline um, prior to this. Is there anything that you th- you've noted amongst health researchers where we perhaps have some blind spots, or um, there are there are I don't know, just just parts of the thinking you've encountered in other disciplines that um, would be good for us to learn more of, as well as learning from the majority world. So there's that understanding of the social context which we have been talking about. Um, I think there is uh, a fundamental need to really try to put yourself in the other shoes, is the idea of perspective taking, taking the perspective of the other, particularly if we are going to be applying these participatory approaches, even if it's in a limited way. I am pragmatic as well, I understand that everyone can spend 10 years in Villarica, I mean, myself included. But I think we need to be a bit more open about where the histories of people, of the forms of exclusion that they have endured, than then just coming in with like this linear advice that in many cases just doesn't resonate. And then work with them and come up with combined solutions about, well, how could we make this make sense, representations, and then action, how could we get this to actually work? And it might be that we need to apply a flexible approach. And I realize this might be a little bit controversial. But that absolutist top-down framing is not working in many contexts. So something has to be done. And perhaps they might actually have something to say. I think personally that they do. But we need to give them that time and that space. And in that regard, we do have a very important position that we need to be very wary of, which is all that power that we bring in. Right. And it is difficult to say that we're going to try to not be asymmetrical and to reduce the power relations, but they are enacted in social dynamics. It's something that is very difficult actually to um, carry out in practice because whether we like it or not, we bring all that education, all that training (laughs) into the table and then sometimes people do feel quite intimidated about Mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. So I think there's also something about us working a little bit harder on our own translating and how we bridge the knowledge that we bring from the communities into formal society, into policy making, into enabling that. But that also means that a lot of health researchers require a lot of training as well. And perhaps to be exposed to uh, the life roles of these communities, particularly I'm thinking of people that might be working more uh, on quantitative methods or the data scientists would do an amazing work. But if they are now going to be involved in doing public involvement and if public involvement or community engagement is applied throughout, then I do think more needs to be done than just telling people that they have to do this. At the same time, I think it's fine to also call things what they are. If you're going to be running a consultation and a consultation is enough, that's fine. But then I would also encourage people to find out what the different forms of participation mean what the different forms of community engagement mean, and like you so lovely highlighted, to understand a little bit of the history of where a lot of this germinated from. It's 
Brilliant. Thank you, Natalia. Is there anything else that you want to say on any of the themes that we've, we've talked about today? No, I think another point, I guess, to add to that as qualitative research is the importance of reflexivity. So what I was just talking about earlier encapsulates that. But in that regard, I think we need to be conscious about how we are feeling about our own emotions, about coming into a lot of these places, if we are doing research with excluded communities. But even if our, in our own London borough, and I know that a lot of Queen Mary academics are working locally, and here we still see, you know, we have 56% of, of child poverty in the borough. So there are also many things that our own local communities are going through. And to just be okay, it's okay to acknowledge that it's hard for us to go into uh, listening to a lot of these narratives. And to acknowledge the fact that we're human as well. And luckily in qualitative research, which is, you know, anti-positivist, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. it's actually celebrated. Because we are human beings after all, and human beings are intrinsically relational. Thank you. That's a brilliant note to end on. And thank you for sharing today. It's been sort of stretching, I think, in terms of ideas for me, like of things that I am deeply unfamiliar with. But I hope um, for everyone listening, just to be exposed to yeah, some more history, but also just some more um, ways of seeing. I, yeah, I, I've really appreciated it. So thank you, Natalia. And thank you everyone for listening. Um, we'll be back next month with another episode and you can subscribe on uh, most major podcast platforms. And um, we'll be back with you soon. <laughs>